The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the hermetic science of motion and number once again. We're going into part five here tonight of this book, and actually, we're going to be reading from lesson six. We are skipping lesson five because I had covered that on a previous broadcast called Pythagoras and the Music of the Spheres. If you want to get caught up on that, you could go back and look at that episode here. So, we're going to go straight into lesson number six in the Hermetic Science of Motion and Number. And this one is titled, The Rhythm of Life. So uh, I hope this is an interesting read for you folks out there. A lot of details in this book that could be figured out just by seeing what this guy has to say. And this portion we're reading tonight is really, truly interesting when we get down to it. Because it could give you a better way of figuring on what's going on in the world, how these things work. Uh, so that being the case, it's important that we discuss these things and we break these things down and analyze them in the way that we do, because we need a better understanding of what it is that these dark occultists who run things in this world seem to know that we don't. And this is a good primer for people on hermetic science. So this book comes highly recommended, even though I don't always agree with all of this guy's findings or his, uh, how should we say, his conclusions he draws from these things or the uh, position he comes from with them. I find the information still valuable. So that being the case, it's always very interesting to get into this stuff. The rhythm of life. The vital force in its activity is a product of vibration. It owes its origin to a definite vibration the same as all the other forces in nature. You must bear in mind that all the natural forces are solely the product of a definite state of vibration. All life force vibrates on that plane or the rhythm which pertains to life. The rhythm of life governs the activity of all the vital forces. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So he's talking about the vital forces or the vital plane here, the vital body. We've discussed these ideas before on past episodes. Once again, you see how all these different teachings align in some way, shape, or form. So we're talking about the vital body, the vital plane. This is the plane from which the rhythm of life generates, according to the Hermetic Science. So this is the thing which aligns life processes here in the physical world into manifestation. So let's continue reading here and see what else we could garner from this reading. Whenever the energy in its vibratory activity reaches that scale, that rhythm, which we term the rhythm of life, they are drawn together. That is, the ultimate atoms are drawn together and form the ultimate vital atom. The ultimate vital atom is composed of a party of the ultimate material atoms which are held together by the rhythm of life. 
It is by reason of that rhythm that they are held together, and they, in all their activities, act, move, or vibrate in accordance with the rhythm of life, or the rhythm of life governs and controls their action, and there are almost infinite differentiations of that rhythm, and of course, some vibrate much more highly than others do, but all vibrate in accordance with the rhythm of life. The more intensely they vibrate, the more of life is manifested. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. I know it sounds very repetitive. It sounds like the number of the count shall be three, and three shall be the counting of the numbers. <laughs> and thou shall not proceed on to three, lest thou count two first. <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me when I read some of this stuff. But uh, we get the point here. He's talking about the idea of this rhythm of life, how the vital forces are intrinsically tied to this. And it's a vibratory process of sorts. Uh, emanating from the vital plane into the physical material world here and manifesting as a life or life force, holding together all of these ideas, holding together that which lives, that which moves and has being here, you see. But let's continue reading. The only thing which is necessary in order to transmute matter into life is to cause its atoms to vibrate in accordance with the rhythm of life. Gonna pause for another moment here, folks. So essentially, what this is saying is that in order to transmute dead matter or unliving matter into a living matter, all that's necessary is to cause the atoms to vibrate in accordance with this rhythm of life to Im be imbued with this vital force from this vital plane, you see. And this is something that is poorly understood by mankind, poorly understood by the occultists who teach this as well, and completely misunderstood or not understood at all by our modern scientific paradigm. So this is an important idea, and if we could actually wrap our heads around this, we could understand something a little bit more pertinent to how life actually generates. You see, because when we look around at this world around us, we know through our modern science and such that they claim all these constituent parts are already there. We have all of this, uh, these chemicals or whatever, this primordial soup, right? They claim that we came out of this primordial soup somehow. Life emanates from that. Well, how does that happen? You can mix chemicals in a test tube all day and not produce life. Well, this, according to the hermetic sciences, is how life is imbued in this place. It is given here through the manifestation of this vibratory rate which emanates from the vital plane or from the vital source, the vital body. This other field that is all around us and permeates the entire earth around us and through us. And it's a poorly understood idea, you know, especially when it, you look at it in terms of our modern science. It emanates from elsewhere, from some counter space somewhere, some other world, some other realm. And we can't duplicate it physically here. Even if we put together all of the constituents, the constituent chemicals of life here, it does not produce life, right? We could build proteins and such. But this does not make life. And this is the big mystery. This is one of the big mysteries that there is in all of creation. 
So this is what's lacking according to the hermetic sciences when you, you do that, when you put something together in a laboratory situation or something. This is the essence that's missing, this vital force that emanates because of this vital plane through this rhythm of life. So this is what it's about. It's a vibration rate. They always equate this stuff back to a vibration rate. And actually, I, I think when they're referring to a rate of vibration, it's kind of an allegory. It's not really talking about some kind of a musical chord or something like that, I don't think, in my view. It may be an energetic principle akin to music, but music in another realm, in another world, in another plane, on another level that we don't understand. A spiritual music, per se, that we wouldn't be able to understand or comprehend in the physical plane. So I think that this is something akin to that. And this goes back to the electromagnetic spectrum and frequency and stuff like that. There are so many bands of the electromagnetic spectrum that are beyond human senses. To be able to see, to measure, to hear, to understand, to have any kind of inkling of. So maybe some of these things permeate through these different layers of... Uh, these different layers of worlds, as the occultists describe it. And I, I, once again, I'll pause for a second here to caution you to always take this stuff with a grain of salt, because none of this stuff is really, in any way, provable or unprovable, to say the least. There's no way to prove or disprove it. Let's put it that way. So a lot of it you have to take with a grain of salt. It makes sense. It's logical. There are some contextual clues that point to some of the accuracy of some of the details that they put down here, that there is a core of truth, a kernel of truth to some of what they say, but you can't measure it in a physical sense. And this is the same thing when they're talking about this rate of vibration. I don't think this rate of vibration they're talking about, this vital force vibration, can be measured in any quantifiable physical way in our physical reality here. And that's the whole point, right? That's the whole point. It's a step above it. It reaches into these other causal worlds. And this is the whole idea. It's an allegory when they're speaking of vibration. So don't think in literal terms of vibration. Now, it's probably akin to that. It can reach into what we would call our electromagnetic spectrum here in the physical world, perhaps. But its source is from elsewhere. And we don't understand exactly how this would work. Nobody does. That's the big secret. Although these occultists and, you know, even to a lesser degree, well, actually probably at a greater degree, our scientists of today claim they understand how these things work and how everything came into being and stuff like that. They don't know. <laughs> they really don't know. A lot of it you have to take with a grain of salt because it's on the basis of faith. It's a belief system more than anything. And the same thing goes for many of these occult teachings. Who handed these teachings down? Or how do we know they're correct? You see, we, we could be handed down teachings from way back at the beginning of, of time, of, of civilization, and how would we know if they were correct back then, and more importantly, if they're still correct today? How would we know that? How would we be able to prove that? Hmm? Or disprove that? Now, I think there are, like I said, 
some circumstantial evidences pointing to some of the core truths that are presented in some of these hermetic sciences. And that's why I think it's important to look at them and to analyze them and to take it all in to have a better understanding. Because this way of thinking makes more sense than the scientific paradigm we're handed. Because we're handed these contradictory models of how the world works with our science. We have relativity model for physics and we have the quantum model for physics. They don't mesh in any way, shape, or form, but yet they want to make these grand unified theories of physics that work. And it can't happen. It can't be both ways. And we discussed this actually on the last episode of this we did where the author here, A.S. Rawley, revealed that the mystery schools, these occult philosophers, they teach in paradoxes. They teach in a way where they want it both ways. And it's one, one way or the other is incorrect. You can't have it both ways. Yet they teach in these types of paradoxes. And it stretches the bounds of the mind. It stretches the bounds of the belief system. And it teaches us a little something about the polarized nature of the world that we live in. And this all has to do, once again, with the overall hermetic principle of rhythm. And specifically here tonight, we're talking about the rhythm of life. So let's get back into the reading, because I, I do find this information fascinating, and we'll get into some interesting ideas that uh, Mr. Raleigh puts forward here. Let's read on. The only thing which is necessary in order to transmute matter into life is to cause its atoms to vibrate in accordance with the rhythm of life. Whenever you do that, you transmute it into life or prana. The vital force, as I stated, always vibrating in accordance with life, and the tissue which is vibrating in accordance with that rhythm must necessarily manifest a greater quantity of life. What is the difference between living tissue and dead tissue? We hear a great deal about the decaying of live matter and dead matter. What is the difference? The difference is simply this. In living tissue or in living organisms, the tissue is vibrating in accordance with the rhythm of life and therefore is manifesting life. While in dead tissue or dead matter, the rhythm of life is absent. The rhythm of death has taken its place. That is, the rhythm which is below that of life and which therefore cannot manifest any vital energy. There is a subject about which the physicists have given much attention, and that is how to generate life from matter, and with them, spontaneous generation of life would all be solved if they could just find out how to impart the rhythm of life to the vibratory activity of this substance. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. That's a huge idea right there. How do you imbue life into the substance? This is the great alchemical mystery, isn't it? The whole mystery of life. And it's all about this vibratory rate, as said here, referred to as, quote-unquote, prana. And there are other terms that some of the other occult organizations have for the same thing. Uh, they'll call it vital force, life force, life energy, vital energy, all kinds of different things, prana. It's all the same teachings, across all these different occult organizations and 
secret brotherhoods and fraternities that teach these things, sometimes they just change up what the names are of these certain ideas, but it's all the same core tenets of all of it at its roots. So when they're talking about this life substance, this vibratory rate, this activity, this rate of vibration that they call prana, the life force, they're, you know, talking about the same thing. It's also called louche by some out there that research these things and look at this. Uh, so there's many different names for this same principle here. And it's been observed by some people that there are spiritual type entities or powers or forces out there that feed on this type of energy, this life force energy, this prana, this louche, if you will, whatever you want to call it. And there are also some dark occultists out there that may have learned how to siphon off this life force energy from others. And a lot of it has to do with blood rituals. Uh, so that being said, we can see the importance that's imbued here. The whole idea being that uh, we cannot, in the physical, create life. We cannot make life manifest just by combining the core chemicals that are inherent in life forms. It just doesn't work like that. And this is the missing key. Now, there are some occultists who claim that perhaps they have a little better understanding of this and can create life, artificial types of life in some various ways. I'm speaking of different ideas like the old idea of the golem or the homunculus giving some type of life force to a being like that. You see, and there's a lot of different a lot of different ideas and concepts that arise from this use of the life force or the prana, the louche. And many of these ideas have been played out in modern works of fiction, like Star Wars, the Force, the Living Force, you see. Uh, so, uh, not to get too hung up on the side trail, I want to get through as much of this as I can here tonight. Uh, so, let's go ahead and continue reading, and I'm sure we'll touch on some of those ideas here a little bit later as we go. Whenever the rhythm of life disappears from an organism... The rhythm of death takes its place, and then decay begins. Disintegration begins in that tissue. That is why a body, soon after life has disappeared from it, has left it, begins to disintegrate. What does it mean for the life to leave a body? You often hear the expression, life has flown. What does it mean for life to flee from the body? It simply means that the rhythm of life has ceased to act in that body. And I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. Once again, I think the analogy that we can use to best describe this is the idea of the radio. Think about it. The radio has a transmitter. It has the, the actual radio receiver itself, and then there's the signal. Now, the life force would be the signal. The radio receiver, that would be our body. And when the body breaks down and can't tune in the signal anymore... The signal leaves that radio, and the radio breaks down even further, decays away. Now, it's an imperfect analogy, but it's a good analogy. Here, you have to think in those terms. The spirit, the animus that animates the body, this would be 
congruent to the radio signal. The tuner, the radio tuner, that's the actual, you know, speaker and stuff like that that we have, where you could tune the radio station in and listen to the music, that would be equivalent to the physical body. So when something goes wrong and we start to lose the signal, the radio breaks down. So this would be a similar type idea. Uh, so it's a good analogy, but, uh, you know, we it's an imperfect analogy, but we get the idea here. So let's continue on. Now you can understand, therefore, that just as long as you can maintain the rhythm of life in the vibratory activity of a body, just that long you can make a person live. Just that long you can maintain life, and the moment the rhythm of life ceases to act there, death is the inevitable result. Disease is also the outcome of the absence of the rhythm of life. When tissue has a high rate of vibration, or short wavelength vibration, Moving with great intensity, the molecules are never allowed to be still. They are in a continuous state of activity. The result is that the tissue manifests an abundance of life. If disease germs get in there, they cannot do anything. They cannot rest. The disease is precluded from making any progress because every molecule and atom of the tissues is in intense motion all the time is vibrating intensely, and therefore it is another impossibility for disease, decay, or death to manifest itself because the rhythm of life prevents it. As long as water is running or is in a state of agitation, it is perfectly fresh. What takes place when water ceases to run or ceases to move becomes still. Pretty soon a scum forms over it, it becomes stagnant, wiggle tails appear in it, the same thing takes place when the rate of vibration in the tissue gets low. It becomes almost stationary. It becomes stagnant. Disease is able to manifest itself, and disease germs get in there and get in their work. There is no danger from germs. They are absolutely harmless if the tissue is vibrating with a sufficient degree of intensity. It is only when the vibration becomes low. The wavelength of vibration is long, and it takes a considerable time for it to make a revolution, to make the circuit, we may say, and the result is everything is still and torpid, and disease is able to manifest itself, to take up its abode there, and do its work. But when you increase the rate of vibration to a high degree, then it is an utter impossibility because there is too much life there and there can never be disease where the rhythm of life is present and i'm going to pause for a moment here folks so this theory lends credence to the ideas of rife royal raymond rife his rife machine uh, where he used frequency to heal people and this is why things like this are important to think about all right now, once again, I do caution you, you need to take a lot of it with a grain of salt, because there's no way to really prove nor disprove any of it. But this gives credence to those types of ideas, that vibration can have healing-type properties to it. And there are uh, those solfeggio tones that can be used that are equated to healing and relaxation and things like that. So... Maybe there is some credence to the idea that sound or some vibration can affect the health of a being. Nothing wrong with that ideology. I think there's a core of truth to it. Now, how do we do that? Well, as far as I know, no one's been able to really replicate the Rife machine to an exact degree. 
to make it work how Reif had recorded. So, with the absence of evidence, we have to once again just take a step back and say, hey, we have to take this with a grain of salt, because there's no way to really prove nor disprove this. But uh, we do see some hallmarks of potentialities here that may be a real thing, that there's a core of truth here that these ideas are based upon. And this hermetic science goes back a very, very long time. So if Reif was uh, familiar with the hermetic science, and it would stand a reason to me that he would be, that's probably how he developed the machine that he had developed, you see. So that being the case, if we base some of our modern scientific contrivances on some of these hermetic principles, I think we may get further down the road with many things in this world. So that's why I like to look at this stuff. I would like to challenge people out there to apply some of the older ideologies to the modern way of life and see how it works out for you. Apply some of these hermetic principles to your own situation, to your own lives, and see if it makes a difference. I would say it probably does. You'll find that there's a kernel of truth to a lot of it. And it's important to look at these ideas. And these ideas have been hidden from us by these dark occultists who run things in this world for a very long time for a good reason, you see. They would prefer us not to know about this stuff, but they'll be more than content to have us laugh it off as old, silly, superstitious nonsense as well. So that's the whole case here. They've hidden this stuff from the masses for a long time for a good reason. Because there's some truth to it and it's effective. It's been proven. You see, time and time again, they understand the cause and effect with these different principles these more spiritual or philosophical ideas. They can apply these to certain effects. They know this, and they know if we know this, then their control will begin to slip. They won't have as much control in this place. That's why they've kept these things hidden. That's why it's important that we look at this. So even just this simple idea in and of itself, this idea of the rhythm of life, that there's some type of a vibratory process that emanates from elsewhere, a world outside of our perception. If we could duplicate that, we could replicate the idea of producing life within the physical manifestation here, with these physical chemical forms that we have. So this is a hugely important idea. And it's not lost on these elitists or these dark occultists who run things in this world. They understand that, and they've been trying to work feverishly towards the creation of such types of life. And some of them claim to have succeeded in doing so, but that's a different story for another day. So let's continue with our reading here. Old age is likewise caused by the absence of the rhythm of life. Persons get old because the rhythm of life is not very active. It is low. What is it that really causes old age? Old age is caused by the settling of lime and chalk, and these salts act upon the tissues as well as the arteries, so their walls become hardened and become calcinous and lose their elasticity, and that is really the cause of old age. And I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. So look back at the zodiac 
and the salts of salvation. These ideas, I think there's inherent truths there. There's certain types of chemicals, for lack of a better term, natural chemicals that occur in our body in natural amounts and in our dietary intake and stuff like that that are necessary. And it's it's based upon when during the year you were born the, the salts that you need the most. And much of our health issues derive from a lack of these certain cell salts. So there's a core foundation here of truth, I think, to a lot of this. And I think it's important to look at these ideas. And uh, we've done some work on the cell, cell salts. So that being the case, it's important to consider these things. Look and see, based upon what you know, part of the year you were born in, what's your zodiacal sign? This will tell you in, in certain books what cell salts that you are probably lacking, which ones you need more of than others. Uh, so I could tell you, uh, just based upon when my zodiacal sign falls, it looks like I need a high amount of magnesium in my diet. <laughs> so uh, that being the case, like, uh, you know, uh, it, it's one of those things, like I said, have to take it with a grain of salt, uh, but uh, the cell salt idea uh, may be the grain of salt you need to take. <laughs> so uh, I do find these things very interesting, for sure. Uh, but that being the case, uh, we need to explore these ideas to their core. So it says here that the main cause of old age, and like I said, this can't really be proven by our modern science in any way, shape, or form, but it says the main cause of old age is the calcination or loss of elasticity in the tissues. And this is due to the concentrations of what they call lime and chalk, which I think break down to calcium and uh, lime, I think is potassium in the old language here, if I'm not mistaken. So when you have buildup of this in your tissues, your body begins to slow down and aging takes place. So according to this, supplementation that would take care of this calcination in the body would help to stave off aging, if this is correct. And like I said, that's a study for another day. That's a story for another day. And the cell salts, I think, are, are key to that idea. But uh, for the purposes of time here tonight, let's continue in our reading here. Uh, I do sometimes go on little tangents and side trails. I apologize. That's just the nature of how my brain works. Uh, let's continue reading. Whenever a man dies from old age, he dies from that cause. It is the accumulation of the so-called mineral matter. These earthly salts accumulating in the body obstruct the vital functions and the rhythm of life ceases from that cause. It is the accumulation of too much of the so-called mineral matter, this earthly salt accumulating in the system. If the vibration were sufficiently intense, it would be impossible for these salts to settle in the system. It would be kept in a state of agitation all the time so that the accumulation would be impossible. Therefore, accumulation is the result of a low state of vibratory activity. The absence of the rhythm of life is the cause of old age, decay, and death. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So essentially what he's saying is 
the absence of this rhythm of life is what causes this calcination to take place in the body, this decay, the buildup of these earthly minerals, as he, he calls them here. So what's actually going on here? Is it a physical cause? Is it just this buildup that causes the rhythm of life to begin to depart from the body? Or does the departure of the rhythm of life from the body cause the calcination of these tissues and the buildup of the minerals? You see, maybe we're looking at it backwards when we're trying to cure the physical body with a physical cure. You see... And I think this is a hugely important idea that's pointed out here. If you use a little bit of logical deduction from the things that we've been told here in this book and from other places. So maybe simply the cell salts alone are not necessarily the answer. Not by themselves, anyway. So there's something spiritual going on here. The life force, the life essence, the vital force, whatever you want to call this. This rhythm of life. If this rhythm of life begins to depreciate in your body, then you'll begin to age more rapidly. The mineralization will take place. The, the minerals will settle in your body, as the author says here. So what, what's the cause and what's the effect? You see, maybe we think about it backwards, and I think that's where we get it wrong in a lot of our modern medicine. We think of cause and effect. The physical cause is here it manifests in this way so disease and uh, you know aging and stuff like that they would equate to a physical cause when the cause may actually be something spiritual and the physical manifestation that we see is the effect not the other way around so there's not something physical causing you to age and having that spiritual effect on you it's the other way around there's a spiritual cause that brings about the physical effect on us so it's important to keep these things in mind because we've been taught in our modern scientific paradigm to think strictly in terms of the physical, the material world. So it would be, if you were to mention to somebody in the modern medical field that perhaps the reason that you're sick is because you have some kind of a spiritual blockage or some such thing, right? For lack of better terminology. If you have some kind of a spiritual lack in your life, and that, that's you know a reason that you tell them maybe that's why you became sick or have such and such a physical problem, they would laugh you out of town. They would probably put you in the mental hospital if you were to tell them that. Because they're taught to think in these strictly physical material world terms, that there's always this physical cause for a thing. And that may not be the case. The physical thing that they see manifest as a symptom of illness or dis-ease, may manifest from elsewhere. And it's a different way of thinking than what we're accustomed to in the modern age. But mankind, back in the ancient times, understood this a little better than we do. In my estimate here, and I think these hermetic sciences bring this principle full circle, so it's important to keep that in mind as we go. The physical processes and the physical chemicals, per se, that are involved in health and well-being and life itself are not the root of where life comes from. They are simply the building blocks that allow it to manifest in the physical world here. And the same thing could be said for dis-ease. 
the manifestation of dis-ease in a body, in a person, in the world here, and even aging and death itself, probably has a cause that comes from elsewhere, outside the physical system. So it's important to keep these things in mind, and like I said, there's really no way to prove or disprove any of this. You have to take it with a grain of salt, but it's important to think about these things. Because I think there is a core of truth to the idea. And for lack of better descriptive terms, I think it could be fair to say that we don't really truly understand how life truly begins or manifests here in this world. Now, I know we've made some observations from the natural world, and we know certain things about how animals and plants and various living organisms come to be, but we still don't understand what imbues this life essence to it and gives it this animus, this spirit. It's not understood. It's not something that could be explained by science, although they claim to understand maybe the physical, chemical aspects of how it all works. It still doesn't explain what life truly is. And that's the thing. It's, it's one of the great mysteries here. And nobody in the scientific community could adequately explain what differentiates a living thing from a non-living thing if they're all consistent of the same constituent chemicals and physical parts and makeup, you see. Well, it's this life essence, and they don't truly understand what exactly it is. And the hermetic sciences try to describe it as frequency or vibration, vibratory rates, things of this nature, an energetic principle. And this is a, a fabulous allegory for it. I don't think it's talking in terms of a literal sound wave, perhaps. And if it is, it's probably one that permeates through the various different worlds of manifestation that they talk about. So it's something we can't physically measure in our material world here. But it doesn't negate the fact that it's actually there. So let's read on. I don't want to get hung up on these side trails for too long. You must bear in mind that not only is the vital force in man acting in accordance with this rhythm, but the individual prana is moving according to the rhythm. There is also a universal prana, a cosmic prana, which corresponds to the prana in man. This universal force is the same as this third principle in man. The universe and everything in it is formed on the basis of the septenary principle. We have a spirit, a cosmic spirit, a cosmic soul, a cosmic mind, the mahat, and there is then the astral plane of nature as well as the astral in man and the life force or universal prana and the universal ether or cosmic ether and then the physical side, the gross physical side of the universe. This is the septenary division of nature. All created nature is divided into or manifests itself upon these seven planes. And this is the macrocosm. The man, then man partakes of these created principles, the spirit of man corresponding to the spirit of nature, and the soul of man corresponding to the universal soul or purusha, and the mind of man or his mental body corresponding to the mental plane of nature, 
the astral body of man corresponding to the astral plane of nature, the individual prana corresponding to the universal cosmic prana, the etheric double in man corresponding to the ether of the universe, and man's gross physical body corresponding to the gross physical body of the universe. Man is, therefore, the microcosm of nature, of the macrocosm, or great world. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. A lot of information in that last paragraph. <coughs> you see, throughout the hermetic sciences and throughout all these other secret teachings from these occult fraternities and organizations, they teach of this septenary nature in which we exist, these seven worlds, the seven bodies of man, the seven worlds of the macrocosm, and of which man is the microcosmic reflection, as above, so below. So these different ideas, although they have different names in the different uh, types of teachings here, like the Rosicrucians may have slightly different language, and the Eastern traditions have slightly different language. They're all describing the same basic things, and some of them break them down into subcategorizations of these seven planes through which man exists, through which the universe exists, you see. So this septenary division of nature, as described here by Raleigh in this, is telling us a little bit of something about how manifestation occurs. Now, we are just familiar with the physical concept here, the physical world. That's the world in which we live, this material form. This would be what he calls here the gross physical body, and it corresponds to the gross physical body of the universe. So we are the macrocosm of nature or of the universe manifest here in man himself, as within, so without. So you, you see these hermetic axioms that come up all the time. And all these different secret teachings, they teach all these same core principles. Although, like I had alluded to, they may give them slightly different names. But it, it's all the same concept at the end of the day. So they teach that we have these corresponding seven layers of manifestation that we exist in. All right, And that this physical body is the most dense or lowest of these manifestations. And all things run through the cycle, down through these seven layers, and then back up again through the seven layers, and repeat. And this is the cycle. This is what they call evolution in the secret teachings from the secret schools, from the mystery schools. Now, this has been grossly misconstrued into something in the physical world here, in the material world, by Darwin and others this whole idea. The evolutionary process, as described by the ancient mystery schools, has nothing to do with one animal magically transmuting into another here through the course of millions and millions of years, slowly evolving into something else. That's not what evolution was originally intended as by the secret schools. This is a perversion of the teachings, and it has to do, again, with racial identity in many ways. See, all these ideas were birthed from the same place. They're all perversions of these ancient mystery school traditions and teachings. So when they're teaching you about Darwinian evolution, 
This is an absolute perversion, inversion, of what the ancients were teaching about evolution. It was supposed to be a spiritual thing, how man descends through these various seven physical, or not physical, I should say these seven planes, three of which are physical, one is mental, and uh, I'm describing that wrong, three of which are, are higher spiritual. There's one in the middle where the that's kind of like the mirror where mind is, where mind exists, wherein the spiritual is reflected down to the physical. So we descend through this track, through these seven worlds, and then we ascend again up back into the spiritual realms from these grosser physical manifestations here. Uh, This is what they teach in the mystery schools. Like I said, you have to take this stuff with a grain of salt. There's no way to really prove nor disprove any of this. We're taking the word of some people who claim to know this. Now, where did they learn this from? Who knows? That's the whole point here. We're handed this information, and it it is a logical description that they give us on how these things work and manifest here and how we uh, transcend and, and, you know, ascend and descend through these different planes of existence, these different worlds of manifestation through these spiritual Uh, types of highways and such like that. But who was the one that told us this? That's the thing. How, How would we know? How would we know? How do we know what happens after we we die and leave this place? How do we know what happens then? And we've been handed down some of these traditions and teachings from time immemorial. Now, some of them claim authority, and they claim that they they know this. This has been recorded. It's been observed by their trained clairvoyants and such. Well, like I said, got to take it with a grain of salt. Can we really prove nor disprove any of it? Not really. A lot of it has to be taken on the basis of faith. And there's a, a difference between faith and what's called belief. And this is a hugely important idea, too. And this is where our modern English language kind of drops the ball. You can have faith without having a belief, per se. So you can have faith in a thing, in an observation, in an idea, and not hold or cling to it as an absolute standard belief, you see. Because, you see, in order to have faith, faith is a lot more flexible than a belief, would be, in my view. I I don't know if I have adequate words to describe the difference between faith and belief, but faith is a lot more flexible, I think would be the best way to describe it, than belief. A belief is usually something more rigid. It's something more dogmatic, whereas faith does not necessarily have that type of dogma or dogmatic thought attached to it. It is not as rigid. It's more flexible. It's more fluid, you see. So having a belief and having faith are two different things. So you can have faith in some of these concepts and maybe not necessarily have a firm belief in them. It's difficult to describe because our English language lacks the the proper words. And I think probably some of the older languages had better words to describe these different differentiations between these things. But it's something that's lost in a lot of modern thought, because we don't think in philosophical ways anymore, much like that. 
Like, what's the difference between faith and belief? Most people would not even be able to draw a distinction between the two. And that's the problem, because we've just been handed these words that uh, are translated from older languages, and the, the nuance of the older languages has been lost in modern English. So even though faith and belief mean two different things, they're considered the same in our modern English parlance. And the translation of them has, has been misconstrued through time. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. So the, the whole point here is that we see this description that we were been given by the hermetic sciences here. Now there's those, especially within these occult orders, that have grossly misconstrued some of these old original teachings and have twisted them to fit an agenda that they have. And many of these occultists are of the dark occultist variety. So they contort these ideas to fit into what they want them to fit into, to promote a certain agenda, or to push a certain thing, or to quench or quell some other certain things. Uh, so that being the case, when we look at teachings like this, and understand what's what's been put forward by these occult societies, these secret orders, these brotherhoods through the ages here, the old ancient mystery schools coming forward in the modern day where they're keeping these secrets from us about things that they may or may not understand about manifestation here. When they have this type of a worldview and we don't, well, they have an advantage over us if this is truly how things manifest, which I think, like I said... There's a core of truth behind this. Otherwise, why would they try to keep this stuff hidden from us for as long as they have? Why would they? It's all about power and control with these people, these secret society groups, these dark occultists at the top of the power structure that want to have as much leverage over the masses as possible. So if they understand some of these principles and are able to leverage them in certain ways against the masses, well, that gives them a huge advantage especially if we're looking at stuff all wrong. And let's face it, folks, we're looking at stuff all wrong. Almost everything we've ever been taught is not true. Is it an outright lie? In some cases, yes. Or is it just a misconstrued concept, which is also a lot of the case here? Because we do see certain things fall in line with our modern science and the things we're taught the ways we're taught to think, they do have actual working models that produce results based upon some of these modern types of thought forms. But at the end of the day, are we really taught the truth about how it works? It doesn't matter how it works, it just matters that it works in the view of the elites here, or these dark occultists that run things. So when they give you an antibiotic or something to cure uh, some type of a, uh, a you know, a, an illness you have, and it works and you get better, well, does that mean that their germ theory model is absolutely correct? N no, not necessarily. But it means maybe they have an understanding of some type of the physical manifestation that's happened, and they realize that, hey, through trial and error, hey, this this works to stab off this thing. Does that mean that the model they came up with to describe how this works, this um, 
how should we say, mechanism of action, how this mechanism of action works, is it really correct? It doesn't necessarily mean that the mechanism of, a of action that they've identified and described is really the correct way that it works. They just know that it works, you see. And just the fact that it works, and they describe it in a certain way to you, gives credence to the idea that the model they've given you is accurate because they describe they told you hey we'll give you this because it'll work and then you see the evidence it does work so therefore you come to the conclusion and sometimes erroneously that the model that they gave you for the mechanism of action is accurate and that might not be the case just because it works how many discoveries have been made by accident think about that by accident not through some idea of a mechanism of action or some hypothesis but somebody discovered hey you know what uh I, I had a bad stomach ache and i ate that herb over there that plant and lo and behold my stomach ache was cured and i've done this numerous times where that's happened and i've used this herb and this has worked well do you think that uh you know the early peoples who discovered various herbs and things to cure certain ailments were sitting here coming up with an idea of a mechanism of action for understanding that this thing works or do you think they they just realized you know what if i eat this herb then i i won't have that stomach issue any longer ta-da there it is then they could formulate a theory as to why it works it doesn't mean that it's accurate right well that's the same thing that goes on with a lot of our modern science they find things that work and then they come up with a descriptive way to describe the mechanism of action thereof. And oftentimes they'll use advanced mathematics to plug in variables and make it work mathematically and say, ta-da, this is why it works. They do this with physics in particular, <laughs> right? Let's, let's put dark matter in the equation. That'll explain how things work. Th this is exactly what they do, all right? It doesn't mean that it's an accurate description. It doesn't mean it's an accurate mechanism of action in that case. It just means they discovered something, you know, works in a certain way. And they've done their best to describe how that works by coming up with a model. And why do they come up with these models? Well, because it's about control. If you can model something, if you could quantify something, if you could measure it, you can control it. That's what it's all about. It's about the quantification of everything. And that's what they seek to do. So they found out, okay, this works. Let's try to figure out how it works. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes they do come up with the accurate description of the mechanism of action on things. But oftentimes, that's a matter of faith as well, isn't it? We're assuming that there's this strictly physical property involved, this strictly material world property involved with some such thing, not taking into account that there might be things we don't understand that we cannot describe. There's worlds all around us that we do not sense, that we do not experience, that we do not understand. We can't describe. We can't see them, these invisible worlds. And, you know, the hermetic philosophies, as well as some of these older teachings, ascribe cause and effect back to these invisible worlds. So we have to keep this stuff in mind, because perhaps there's something to it. Or perhaps it's a misdescription in and of itself as well. But uh, at any rate, we do see the, the uh, evidence here 
the contextual evidence that much of what they tell us in, in some of these different teachings has some core of truth to them. So it's important to take these things in and consider them, in addition to looking at things through our modern lens, through the strictly material world lens. Because at the end of the day, nobody truly understands how these things work. Nobody truly understands how life works, where life comes from, how something just, you know, is alive or not when they're, they consist of the same components. Because I'm sure, just like Frankenstein's monster, anybody out there could put together, uh, you know, some type of chemical mixture or something that has all the makings of life and not be able to produce life because we don't understand how does this manifest. And this is the important thing. So this idea of the rhythm of life or this vital force is the important concept here. And this could only emanate from an invisible place, the invisible world, one we can't measure, we can't see, we can't quantify. You see, that's the whole problem with this. They're trying to quantify things that they can't really quantify because it's not something that can be measured in a physical way in the material world. So they come up with models to try to fit it into the mold where it can be measured in a sense. And sometimes they come up with models that work well enough that they could implement some type of control, but it's not an accurate description of the mechanism of action, as we discussed. But it's close enough that they could get some results. You see, that's why they seek to quantify some of these ideas. That's why. Because if they could quantify it, and measure it, then they could control it. And it offers them some measure of control here. But let's continue reading. Each and every principle in man corresponds to a principle in nature. Each principle in man, and also in nature, acts in accordance with a rhythm corresponding to that principle, so that the rhythm of life is not only in operation in man's prana, but also in the universal or cosmic prana. The rhythm of life is in a state of activity, or rather, this cosmic prana is moving in accordance with the rhythm of life all the time. It is this fact that man is the microcosm of nature that is the basic law of astrology. Astrology really owes its truth to the fact that man is a microcosm of the universe, and so is every other portion of the universe a microcosm of the whole. The sun and the moon and the various planets affect man because the same principle which is in man is also in those bodies and by reason of their acting upon, polarizing, and acting through the rhythm upon the same principle in man, they are able to influence him. Not only that, but all of these bodies apply to and represent certain principles. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. This is why the idea of the sky clock is hugely important. This is why they've tried to dismiss astrology as being fanciful nonsense in the modern era. But believe me, at the topmost levels of the power structure in this world, these dark occultists who run things are obsessed with the astrological indications of things. They time everything according to certain principles in the sky clock, and they leverage these different energetic principles that are inherent in the natural order against us because we are a microcosmic reflection of that macrocosmic universe. So things that affect the outside universe, these different energetic principles, these alignments that happen, will affect the human being in some way, shape, or form. 
they know this. They leverage this all the time against us, and they laugh at us for being ignorant of it. They give us things like horoscopes that are out-and-out nonsense, but at the end of the day, there's a real science to astrology. And understanding the astrological gives them an advantage over us, and there's certain aspects of it that they've still kept hidden from us. So even those who study astrology in the modern day and you know know their, their worth with the astrology still struggle with some of the ideas here because there's something that uh, many of these dark occultists at the very tip-top of the power structure understand about it that we don't. There's certain ideas they've kept hidden from the greater world of astrological study. So that being the case, they've made it kind of a taboo topic. So we have our modern astronomers who laugh at astrology and think it's all utter nonsense. There's nothing much to it. And then we have the astrologers who can't seem to uh, come to terms with the astronomers. So you have this division that's created, and each one loses a bit of information in the process by doing that. That's why it's important to look at it, come up with neutral ground, neutral territory, a neutral name for it. And that's why Crow aptly named it the Sky Clock, so that people could think about it in both these ways without drawing the ire of the others. And maybe we're not losing information in that way. Because the astronomers make observations that the astrologers probably don't or can't because they lack the tools to do so, and vice versa, you see. So if we could combine these minds together to make observations and be able to observe patterns in societal order, we can make different inferences to different alignments. And this has been done largely by the elites of this world through the years. They've kept meticulous records, some of which were probably burned, (laughs) a lot of which were kept by court astrologers. Why do you think kings in the ancient days had court astrologers? Why do you think modern kings still have court astrologers? Why do you think President Reagan publicly used astrologers to help him with policymaking? This is on public record. I mean, this this is, you know, something that's a known commodity. And, and he's not the only one. Other presidential administrations also enlist the help of astrologers in their decision-making. This goes to the very top of the power structure. So when we understand this, there's a real science to it. There's real principles involved. And it has to do largely with this rhythm of life, as it's called here. It has to do with this vital force, or the force, as allegorized in the Star Wars trilogy. It's a universal essence that permeates all living things, and the entire universe, because the entire universe is a giant living thing, in a sense. All right? Don't take that thought literally, you know what I'm saying, but... uh, Uh, In any sense, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, So, let's continue reading here. There is a certain principle of man and nature preeminently represented in the various planets, and it is because of this fact that they are able to exercise their influence upon you. The planets and the moon and the sun are in man, and it is for that reason that they 
exercise their great influence upon him. In the exact proportion, as any principle in man acts in accordance with the rhythm pertaining to it, so does it polarize with the corresponding principle in nature. Even so, and in the exact proportion as man's prana moves in accordance with the rhythm of life, and the more intensely that rhythm is expressed in his prana, even so it is polarized with the universe of cosmic prana, and thus his prana is moved in accordance with the same rhythm that the universal or cosmic prana is moved. And just as surely as he polarizes with this pranic force of the cosmos, so does he embody it. Man's prana, or life force, therefore, is not limited except in regard to the degree to which he acts or expresses the rhythm of life, but to that degree does he draw from and embody the universal cosmic prana. That comes into him. He embodies it, and thus he takes it, and he expresses it. And there is no limit to the quantity of life which may be expressed through an organism, provided you can maintain the rhythm of life at sufficiently high point, and thus you will be able to fully express the life just so far as you maintain that rhythm within your own being. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So I see a major flaw in this thinking, and it's only this, okay? He doesn't tell you how to maintain this life prana, right? He doesn't tell you how you can maintain this rhythm of life. He just says if you can, if you maintain it, then you'll have life and vitality and health, you see. Doesn't tell you how. That's because they don't know how, folks. <laughs> just putting that out there for you. Although some of them claim to know how, and some of them use nefarious methods for prolonging life and supplying some of this prana to themselves. Like I said in the outset here, a lot of it has to do with some of these occult blood rituals and things like that. Why do you think they do that? Well, the blood and the life are closely attuned together. The blood and this rhythm of life very much attuned together. So this is where the idea comes from. So that's why they seek to vampirize others. This is where the legend of vampires and stuff comes from as well. And there may be more to it than just legend. I don't know. I can't say for sure. It's a, you know, field of study. I would definitely have to look more into, but the occult philosophy behind it is based upon this idea of the feeding of the prana, or louche, or life force, life essence, from others. Usually, this life essence, or life force, prana, louche, is associated with the blood, because the life is in the blood. And we've done actual shows talking about this, uh, the idea of the blood, what's the importance there, what's the, the symbolic nature thereof. And this would be what could be considered the physical or material world symbol of this life force, this life energy, this prana, this louche, that idea, this life essence, this rhythm of life manifest in the blood. Uh, at least this is what they teach in the secret society groups, the secret schools, and I think there's some core of truth to that idea. So, it's important to consider these things, but uh, let's continue with the reading. The supply of life is infinite, and consequently, 
by expressing that rhythm, we draw into us that supply of life and the longevity of people. The vitality which they possess and the energy and force are in direct ratio to the intensity with which the rhythm of life is manifested by their activity. How is a man to embody in his own being the rhythm of life? He must, as soon as possible, take into his system only food which has that rhythm, and the water which he drinks, and everything of the kind, and there are various ways in which this can be secured. But one of the most important sources of this life energy, this rhythm, is through his food. What I mean is that not only the prana, but every cell of the human body should be vibrating in accordance with the rhythm of life. It depends upon the substance from which this cell is built as to whether a high degree of rhythm will be manifested. Suppose you eat a large quantity of meat. The meat is that of an animal which has been killed and an animal which is dead from which the rhythm of life has departed, and which, if it is not preserved by artificial means, will begin to disintegrate in a very short time. There is absolutely none of the rhythm of life secured from it, but, on the contrary, the rhythm of death is there present. Therefore, a cell which is built upon that kind of tissue will have the rhythm of death instead of the rhythm of life, and this rhythm of death will have to overcome, have to be overcome by life forces, Therefore, it will neutralize a great deal of it, and you do not have the cell there at all. going to pause for a moment there, folks. So this would indicate a vegetarian diet would probably be best, especially if you're eating live plants, live juices. And we've heard and explored these ideas before. Like I said, you got to take this stuff with a grain of salt because there's no way to truly prove nor disprove this. Now, it makes logical sense to say that uh, this rhythm of life would probably be more prevalent in a living plant or a living vegetable that you eat fresh. That's why it's important that you eat fresh vegetables or juice fresh vegetables and drink the juices thereof. And we've discussed these things ad nauseum before. So there may be some tentative truth to that idea, but... I don't know if it necessarily holds true that just the mere act of eating meat is bringing upon this vibration of death into your body. Perhaps it is. Perhaps it's not. Because there are some people who require meat in their diet. You need a certain amount of proteins to maintain proper muscle activity and such like that. Uh, so this could go both ways. And I've heard the argument made both ways where... Uh, many people will say vegetarians tend to be healthier, or those that maintain a vegetarian diet seem healthier. And I've also heard the opposite to be true, whereas they are less healthy than those that eat meat. Now, that's that's just a you know a personal preference for everybody as to whether you do it. And I understand there are various moral reasons why people choose to go vegetarian or this kind of thing. And I fully understand and support that. That's you know your prerogative if you choose to do that. So as far as the actual ideology itself presented here, I understand the logic behind it, but is it true? That's the other thing we have to ask. Now there may be some evidence that it could be, but there's also evidence to counter that as we just discussed here, as I just said. Uh, so it's a matter of preference more than anything with that. But maybe he's telling us something that's important. 
maybe we all need to be more mindful of what it is we eat because let's face it folks we live in a society that's based upon a culture of death and the things we eat are based upon this culture of death in fact much of the food that's in our grocery stores is not really food at all is it it's far removed from nature it's artificial so it has this inherent type of uh, how shall we say flavor of death to it so let's let's uh, continue on though there is no greater fallacy than the idea that vitality can be secured from meat eating it is an utter impossibility to get a single bit of vital energy out of meat for it does not come from heating combustion as many physicists think it is solely and entirely the outgrowth of the rhythm of life therefore in order to have a high degree of life being expressed through an organism it is necessary to absolutely exclude all meat or dead tissue because the cells which are built up from from it will not possess the rhythm of life and therefore vitality will not manifest itself another very important cause of low vitality is the eating of cooked food the fruit or grain or nut or whatever of that description which is taken into the system is a life organism it has the seven principles which is the same as man and everything else as a grain of wheat or barley or a peach or a plum or an orange or anything of that kind that you can take into your system has these seven principles when it is cooked the temperature in cooking reaches that point where the vital principle the astral principle which is the vehicle of life or prana is unable to maintain its affinity with the physical and etheric principles the result is the astral cell takes the prana with it and goes off on a tangent and the same thing happens there that happens to man when the temperature becomes too high if in a burning building the astral simply goes off and leaves the body just exactly the same thing takes place in cooking food the astral and all the higher principles leave the body of the food the grain or whatever it is so when you eat it you simply eat carcasses you do not obtain the life it is gone therefore the rhythm of life is not there consequently a cell built up by this kind of food does not possess the rhythm of life it will therefore not express this rhythm and consequently the other life forces must be consumed and hampered by this dead cell on the other hand if the cells were built up of raw food cereals fruits nuts etc which possess the rhythm of life they will therefore as they are dissolved impart this rhythm of life to the entire system so that the cells that are taken out of this organism this tissue will possess the rhythm of life and everything will be built up and will express this rhythm in other all other activities the water which we drink also imparts a considerable quantity of prana provided it has not been boiled hot water is generally supposed to be a wonderful thing but a greater mistake never was made hot water will cause the prana to leave it and it attains a certain point of heat when it obtains a certain point of heat excuse me in distilled water in boiled water and everything of that kind the prana is gone and it will not tend to a maintenance of the rhythm of life natural cold water is far the best from the standpoint of imparting vitality another and perhaps the most important method of receiving prana is in the breath gonna pause for a moment here folks the breath we can't state enough the importance of the breath 
the symbolic idea, the spiritual idea associated with it. And that's what he's talking about here. Keep this in mind as we consider what's been done to people over the course of the past two and a half, almost three years now, where they were forced to wear a mask over their face, block their breath, the very life essence. Do you understand? Let's read this again. I'll start back into that sentence and we'll continue on and we'll wrap it up here another and perhaps the most important method of receiving prana is in the breath by breathing we draw in a lot of prana through the lungs and thus the system receives it and this prana always moves in accordance with the rhythm of life and therefore imparts that rhythm to the organism Not only through the lungs do we do this, but at the same time, while we are breathing in the prana through the lungs, there is a current of it rushing through the skin and through the entire body, so that the entire body is drawing in prana, and therefore receiving the rhythm of life. Another point is this. By rhythmic breathing, we bring ourselves in contact with the universe. The rhythm of life is thus established within us by reason of respiration and our circulation, the circulation being governed by the breathing circulation. When we consider that the blood circulates in rhythm, when we breathe in rhythm, we in that way acquire the rhythm of life in this prana into the system by reason of having this rhythm, Also by thinking in rhythm, in bringing the mental activity in this way, and by training the mind to act rhythmically, so that we feel rhythmical, and we thus acquire this rhythm, and thus we polarize ourselves with the great life force of the universe and draw it in, so that, as stated before, there is no limit to the amount of vital force which we may acquire, except the limit on the rhythm of life which is being manifested in our being, and therefore the limit of our capacity to polarize ourselves with the universal life forces of nature. The rhythm of life is, therefore, that principle which differentiates between life and death. If we could impart the rhythm of life to a corpse, we might see him awaken to new life and resurrect him, and that is exactly what did take place in the resurrection of the dead among the saints in times past. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. The resurrection of life. So you see, they acknowledge in the secret schools the resurrection of Jesus Christ as being a literal event. They recognize the sovereignty thereof. And although they try to maybe uh, deviate down different paths with these types of teachings and thoughts as to the nature of Christ, who he was, who he is, and what his status is. They always have to acknowledge him, you see. it's all It all has to do with some karmic principle involved with it. They all acknowledge who he is, because does, does it not say in the Bible that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Well, they already acknowledge that to a certain degree within occultism, but they don't acknowledge the extent to which this is true. But at any rate, that's another side tangent that I don't want to get into right now because we need to wrap up for time's sake here. So let's continue with the reading here. 
So it says here, those who do not understand the rhythm of life may scoff at the idea of Christ resurrecting the dead. Not only he, but others, for he was not the only one who did. But this scoffing is due solely and totally to the misapprehension of this great power of the rhythm of life. When men have learned to understand this principle, they will then say that there is nothing impossible or even improbable in any such man as Christ actually raising the dead. All that is necessary to be done is to set up the rhythm of life when it can be forced in that body. He certainly knew this, and when he undertook to do it, he merely forced his great imagination upon a mental picture, and it was necessary to concentrate his mind and form a picture of the rhythm in a state of activity in this organism, and then by projecting this picture, by causing his own force and vitality to go in accordance with this picture, and then by the activity of the will, project his aura so that it entered the corpse, acting in accordance with the rhythm of life, could be so forced as to arouse that vibration, that life vibration within this corpse, so that it began to act in accordance with the rhythm of life, and immediately the person is restored to life. Take the case of the resurrection of Lazarus, Lazarus after he had been dead for days, when we realize the man had been dead four days and that therefore the rhythm of death was in a state of activity in his organism, disintegration had begun. The master simply in the same way applied the rhythm of life to him and caused life to manifest, changed the tissue until life manifested everywhere, and so the dead was alive. That was all that was necessary, and that was what took place. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Could you imagine what this would mean for the healing process if man truly understood this idea, if this really is a true statement here? If it's really true that this rhythm of life, if you could just re-impart this rhythm of life rather than the rhythm of death in a body, that this could cause the healing process. It's a restoration of sorts. You see, if you understood this principle, how it, how it worked and operated, this would make a huge influence, a massive change in how we view medical things, wouldn't it? So these are important ideas to keep in mind. So uh, let's Let's continue reading. I'm going to wrap up. Of course, it would require a person of very high or order to be able to get up the rhythm of life in a dead body. But notwithstanding that fact, the resurrection of the dead is in this way brought clearly within the comprehension of the mind, which understands this great law of rhythm. The healing of the sick is merely another example of the use of the rhythm of life, and such an act of changing the rhythm was performed when the sick were healed, and all those wonderful feats of healing which Christ and his apostles and the early saints performed were performed by the sudden establishment of the rhythm of life in a high degree of intensity in that body, and inasmuch as disease cannot exist where a high degree of vibration in accordance with the rhythm of life is manifesting, therefore to establish the rhythm of life in a high degree of activity and establish that quick, intense, short wavelength of vibration which manifests so much life and establishes itself in that tissue 
would necessarily mean the expulsion of all traces of disease. It could not manifest under such circumstances, therefore it disappears like frost before a noonday sun. It was an utter impossibility for it to exist when this rhythm was manifesting. Therefore, the dead were raised and the sick were healed, and it is a manifestation and activity of the rhythm of life that is made to manifest itself in this organism. Thus, we see that life is simply and entirely a product of a definite rhythm, just the same as everything else. It is a manifestation and outgrowth of this great system of motion and number, vibration of life forces wherever it is must cause life and life is nothing but a vibration and moving in accordance with rhythm the rhythm of life and therefore must manifest and have expression in life the absence of that rhythm must have caused the reverse of that namely death death then it has been said is the absence of life and that is true and life being the result of the rhythm of life Death is the absence of that rhythm. Death is simply that condition where the rhythm of life is absent. That rhythm is not in a state of activity. Therefore, disintegration and death take place. The rhythm of life produces life wherever it may be. And that's the end of Lesson 6 here, folks. The Rhythm of Life. So we see there's this underlying principle which causes the animation of life here, the animus in people, the spirit, the soul, whatever you want to equate this idea to. It emanates from an invisible realm. It's allegorized as a vibration. And it manifests here in physical ways. This is what's taught in the Hermetic philosophy. And like I said, you have to take some of it with a grain of salt. I think it's a description that's a good description, but we shouldn't take it literally. I don't think it's a literal vibration or like a sound wave or frequency as we would think of it, but it resonates in the same type of way and emanates from these invisible worlds that we can't truly comprehend or be able to sense or perceive. Uh, so that being the case, we leave it as a matter of faith. Not belief, per se, but faith. And some in the occult fraternities have taken this as a matter of belief. And that's where in the difference lies. They've taken it to a place where it's become inverted and perverted from the original teaching. And it's become a dogmatic form of thought for them. And in so doing, they've tried to quantify it in a certain way. And let's face it, they haven't truly ever been successful in being able to do these kinds of things that we can see that's evidenced by proofs here in the modern age by these people. I could be wrong. I always reserve the right to be totally wrong about all of this. But that being said, I think there's valuable lessons to be learned here. I think there are some core truths and tenets to these ideas that perhaps this rhythm of life, this life force, this essence, this prana, this louche, which these dark occultists who run things are so obsessed with, there's something to it. And they try their very best to vampirize us of our life essence in many ways. And that's a lot of what they're about, because it's about control and power for them. And that's how they leverage power and control over 
us is by understanding this type of principle, thinking about it in a more philosophical way than a physical one, and having this overall picture of it that, by and large, the public do not comprehend because we've been taught to think of these ideas as silly or nonsensical. But anyway, folks, I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. That's all I've got for tonight. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night. Thank you once again for tuning in.